0: This episode is brought to you by Vobin from Carta. Vobin from Carta is the easiest way to launch and run your venture investing. They offer SPVs and fund vehicles for GPs at all stages of the journey, from your first syndicate to operating a multi million dollar venture fund. If you're interested in investing in startups, stick around after the episode where I chat with Gabriel Shin from the Vobin from Carta team, who shares his perspective and tips about how to start investing and how Vobin from Carta can get you set up. The link to Vobin from Carta's website is in the show notes. Hey, I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and this is a Consumer VC podcast where we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer innovation. If you're enjoying the show, also subscribe to my newsletter at theconsumervc.com where you will receive new episodes straight to your inbox and a weekly recap of all the consumer deals that are happening. All content episodes are for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not investment advice. This episode is brought to you by Vobin from Carta. Vobin from Carta is the easiest way to launch and run your venture investing. They offer SPVs, And fund vehicles for GPs at all stages of the journey, from your first syndicate to operating a multi million dollar venture fund. If you're interested in investing in startups, stick around after the episode where I chat with Gabriel Shin from the Vobin from Carta team, who shares his perspective and tips about how to start investing and how Vobin from Carta can get you set up. The link to Vobin from Carta's website is in the show notes. Our guest today is Mike Ghaffari, general partner at Canvas Ventures. Mike is the first third time guests on the show. In the first episode, we spoke about how to invest in marketplaces. The last episode I had with Mike, we spoke about what's the next consumer platform after the iPhone. But funnily enough, we didn't mention AI. And so we thought, considering everything that's happening in AI, we need to revisit this question and discuss the opportunity in AI from a consumer technology lens. Without further ado, here's Mike. Mike, round three, your you first third time guest. Thank you so much for coming back on the show.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. And I'm honored. What an honor to be the first third time guest and an early guest. And I've just, it's been amazing to watch your podcast grow and rise. And now a premier uh, tech podcast. It's pretty, pretty amazing and great to see.
0: Well, Mike, that was, um, you were one of the big reasons and big catalysts for it to uh, uh, to kind of continue and to role with. With you being one of the OGs, man.
1: I well, I think you're going to do it anyway, with or without me. But I'm I'm lucky to be along for the ride.
0: Yeah, really excited to kind of diving in on generative AI. I guess before we get started, I think we both want to do like a huge shout out to James Courier um, at at NFX. Um, so he was kind of what sparked this episode as well. Um, he was yeah. on generative, generative AI. I I brought up in that conversation, our previous conversation about what's kind of the next thing after the iPhone. And 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 so uh, and so, yeah, big shout out to James. They kind of spurring this um, without the intention to. So. uh, So, yeah. Yeah, that was fun.
1: I was listening to that episode uh, because I just thought, hey, James is on. I want to hear what he's saying. He's always great. I want to hear. And then uh, and and it was about AI. And I thought this is super interesting. I want to listen to it. And then you guys gave the shout out to me like total coincidence. I was like, "Wow, that's really nice." Um and and then that led to you and I catching up and all of this. So this is great.
0: Totally. Totally love it. In our last episode together, we broke down what are the different what are the different scenarios of the, you know, what's the next big thing consumer platform after the iPhone? We talked about like web3, crypto, you know, the metaverse, AR, uh, VR, and then of course, like, is like remote work, could that be like a platform? Yeah. We didn't get into at all generative AI. I feel like generative AI was not nearly on the horizon uh, back then. But when did you start thinking about generative AI?
1: Well, there's kind of two parts to that question, right? Because I've been, I was a computer science major, so I've been thinking about it for over 20 years since college. But that doesn't mean I had the foresight to say, this is going to be a big tech platform that's going to hit, right? So it's kind of two separate questions. I remember even probably seven or eight years ago now, I was uh, really interested in this book called The Most Human Human about like a Turing test and AI. And I was fortunate um, to be, I was co-organizing this dinner with the author of that book when he was in town. And uh, one of my friends who was helping me organize said, okay, we've got Elon Musk to come to dinner. He's super interested in like AI and and generative AI and language, you know, and, and this was what this stuff was all about. Um, And so once he was on the guest list, we're like, let's just keep it small because he didn't want, it was like seven of us, six of us having dinner times Arthur. So like these conversations have been going on for so long, but it just seems so speculative then, right? Like literally, I think flying and landing rockets uh, for Elon, that was more near term. And AI was this kind of longer term at some point out in the future that people were thinking about more in the science project, but just not ready to be commercialized. Uh, and people have been talking about it for 20 years. You know, my firm, Campus Ventures, uh, and one one of my partners there uh, had actually invested in Siri, right? That was bought by Apple and turned it to like, Siri it was a startup before that, came out of Stanford Research Lab. So it, again, I think thinking about it has been a long time for all of us, but I think embedded in your question, the second is really like, when did we start thinking about it as this is going to be a consumer platform this year, now, like Investable that started. And I think there was a watershed moment around GPT-3. GPT-2 was a sign of it. Dolly and Dolly-2 were a sign of it. Like it started building. Um, And then GPT-3 came out and that was kind of this explosion too. And it really kind of opened everyone's eyes. Like, wow, the moment is here. And so there's been several moments people are calling the iPhone moment because we all remember the launch of the iPhone. And then a year later, the iPhone app store. And everyone's getting some, some of those vibes now, and it 's got everybody excited um, you, the jury's still out it 's not clear that this is going to have the impact that the iPhone had on that kind of time scale um, in the long term. it probably will, but in you know in the next few years, uh, the history will still be written
0: so talk to me a little bit about what was so different about chat gpt two um, since I know you are you know a, 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 you did come from a software engineering background from from the second to the third. Yeah, I
1: don't know if this was GPT-2 versus GPT-3 specifically. It, there's also, first of all, I I think OpenAI does get some credit because you had Google you know, sitting there with their, and now they're doing a bunch of stuff with Bard, um, but they were sitting with a bunch of their work behind the scenes. You had Facebook has an amazing like LLM and kind of engine there. right? Everybody had these different efforts, but they were all kind of keeping it under wraps, right? Apple has Siri integrated and it's out there publicly. There was no major improvement in Siri. That's what we thought was the state of AI. It's like I use it, and it's like, hey, set a timer for me. Hey, call this person. No, 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 not this person. That other person. And it's kind of not always understanding you. Um, you know, Amazon Alexa and chatbots got people really excited, but it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't quite the state of the art the way OpenAI was able to show us. Like, wow, you can generate like real stories, real essays, like high school or college level essays. You can start to like answer exams. I think there were a few of these use cases where people would read it and say, "Oh man!" I, and it's it all comes back to the Turing test that I referenced earlier. Earlier that this most human human book is about. Um, and famous computer scientist Alan Turing proposes, like, can the the computer actually write something um, or say something where you can't tell? You know, is this human level intelligence at first blush when you're reading it at least? And it takes a lot of work to figure out. If a human had written it, when you get to that level, that's pretty impressive.
0: No, totally, to- totally, and I mean, I think also as you say with like open AI, it also just became a lot more accessible as well to people that they can actually you know punch like their own queries. Yeah. That's right.
1: So instead of keeping the locks, I think Google might have had this right. I mean, they did, but it wasn't available. Right? We had a um, an EIR at our firm uh, who was who was doing AI and had access to a lot of this stuff behind the scenes, and we were making some investments, but. This wasn't public to be a platform. It needs to be publicly available. It needs to be that developers can build on it. And then open AI, like I went on and just signed up right for free. And then boom, I was generating, you know, my friends who are completely outside of the tech ecosystem. My mother-in-law was sitting there using GPT to generate fun stories and do interesting things and create ideas. And so it just, once you had that entrepreneurial energy, I think then the light bulb went off like, wow, this maybe really is open to everybody. Yeah, there's a certain openness hence. Hence the name OpenAI. Now, it's it's not OpenAI's kind of game. Now now there's a, a ton of competition. So we'll see how it all shakes out. But I do think they get a lot of credit for pushing to to the forefront.
0: Well, as you say that now, you know, it's like, oh, wow, I, I now have this platforming and can build off this platforming and, uh, and create my own companies based off of generative AI. As an investor, where do you feel like the opportunities are um, when it comes to like, the different... Uh, the different layers when it comes to generative AI?
1: Yeah. So I think uh, a couple areas. First of all, there's generative AI, which we'll probably talk about most. There are these other areas, right? There's AI infrastructure and there's been a lot of investment there. I mean, I think literally to show you how this is, just today there were two fundraising announcements on you know open source vector databases, just today alone, right? WeV8 raised $50 million from Index Battery NEA. And then I thought I had deja vu. I read about QDrant, another... Uh, open source vector database startup the same day. Funding, you know. So it's like there's there a lot of AI infrastructure tooling, a lot of people trying to be like layer zero, trying to be the next open AI or compete with them. People are raising on that. So there's a lot of effort going there. Um, but that's not necessarily consumer, although it might be someone trying to create a consumer platform. And open AI ultimately is consumer right now with, um, by some measures, unprecedented growth of getting to like 100 million people trying the product out. Uh, then you have, uh, you know, you mentioned James Courier and uh, his episode with you where he talked a lot about analytical AI being another bucket outside of generative. And, you know, I spoke with a lot of founders about that. Hey, what would you call the different categories? Um, there's a company, OfferFit.ai, where I'm on the board. And the founder, George, there, he calls it applied AI maybe, but I think there's some similarities as analytical AI. But And sometimes that could be using an LLM, uh, you know, language model um, like, like ChatGPT. But sometimes it might be using, you know, another kind of area of AI. And so, for example, in digital health, right, I have – I was thinking about this. I have all this data of all these tests I've done, all these cholesterol tests and blood tests and glucose tests, and it's all unstructured. It's all kind of a mess. I'd love for, um, you know, AI to go and kind of analyze that for me, do something with it. That's kind of a consumer use case. Could be generative AI, um, but it could also just be applying kind of the analytical aspect of AI. There's also – in kind of contract management, there's use cases there, a lot of B2B use cases. But I think we can spend a lot of today because I think what's got people most excited on the consumer side is really this generative AI use case. Um, and there are just tons of categories there. Um, we can tie, by the way, one more category we should talk about too that kind of hot off the presses of capturing people's imaginations, people think could be bigger than generative AI, AI agents, right? AI to do work for you. AI to go, you can imagine, like, finally, are you going to get that personal assistant um, who can go out and just complete tasks? If you think about the movie Her, where you just kind of have in your ear, the AI is always there. That was a combination of a language model, but also um, an AI agent who's able to do task completion for you, um, which is important. And OpenAI is is doing a big, um, uh, you know, kind of uh, trying to create a platform to, to do task completion as well. So you can go like, Book travel or buy your tickets or or do whatever it is, through plugins. Um. Also, but um. Okay. So those are all the preambles. And now, I, so so I so said long preamble, but diving into like okay, specifically consumer founders trying to look for generative AI startup ideas. I think there are a ton. The first place everybody starts is let's just port over all the existing experiences onto the new platform. They did this with the web. They did this mobile. Like. How will we search with AI, right? Displacing Google and everyone's saying, okay, like what are the new search? There's perplexity, AI, right? Open AI, you know, people are kind of using also for it. Um, How will we shop with AI, right? Displacing Amazon and others, right? Like what's going to, just think of these big categories of where online and mobile has captured lots of eyeballs and and dollars and that's all going to move. How will we connect socially with AI, right? Is Facebook at risk here? Are we going to now use AI to connect to each other socially in new ways, Facebook, LinkedIn. How will we do photos with AI? So Instagram and others who are doing photos, how will we do news? Thinking about my former company, uh, Yelp, where I worked for many years, how will we do local? How will we find restaurants and places to shop and bars to go and electricians and roofers and doctors, dentists and lawyers, like all those services we need, how will AI impact that? Sometimes AI could actually do the service, other times it might help us find the place or service. AI is not gonna really become your restaurant, but it might help you find a great restaurant. So all of these are interesting. And then on top of that, there's stuff that only AI unlocks. The way only mobile could really, like the iPhone app could really unlock Uber's opportunity. Uber was like the first time you could have a phone with GPS. It was always with you and it was a mini computer and then all the drivers could have it and you could displace taxis that way, right? You could change the whole taxi industry. What's AI going to do there where it's not just porting over some web or mobile experience and saying this is the AI version, but reinventing another legacy industry. And the possi- possibilities there are almost endless. There, there's tons. So there's lots and lots of opportunity here. It's actually very exciting. And I'd love to hear if there's any more you want to ask about or or you were thinking of as well.
0: No, totally. I think that those are you know great starting points is, points in terms of um, use case. I love I, I, when you said the the AI agents. It reminds me a little bit about James as well was saying on his episode about how um, you look at the Simpsons and instead of it being one like a team of writers writing for the simpsons it would maybe it might be one person that's actually then talking to like an ai bot and then kind of like sprueing out riffing. different ideas and what have you riffing exactly so you have different ideas and actually then creating episodes um so using it kind of like as an assistant in that in, in that capacity uh, that I can actually learn from and actually develop um developing how um one of the things too that that james um talked about as well is that that, that we discussed is where is the oper- Will the incumbents take off? Uh, uh, take up most of the value, or will it be the emerging companies? Like you mentioned, for example, Yelp, and, and in terms of how they- do you think Yelp and some of like the larger organizations in- into all these different kind of verticals that that you're talking about? Do you think that they're just going to um and not just because it is it-, it is a huge undertaking? Don't get me wrong, but are they going to come out with with incorporating generative AI um uh and or AI? into their platforms? Or do you see actually more so on the innovation side for for new startups taking that value?
1: So the answer here is yes, the incumbents are a big deal. Um, And it's kind of like incumbents, some incumbents will win, but there's always big startup opportunities. And I think the best way to think about this is maybe just look at the analogies of history. History history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme, right? And so we go through, okay, look at the web to mobile shift. Actually, web 2.0 companies in particular were very good at um, you know, incumbents actually winning. They were still kind of startups and growing. So Yelp's a good example. Like Yelp started as a web company, right? It was on your laptop and the desktop web, but mobile was perfect for it. And Jeremy Stoppeman, the founder to his credit, realized as soon as the iPhone came out, he said, oh my God, this is like the perfect platform for Yelp. Local and mobile are inherently linked. We need to go all in on this, right? And bought it the day it came out, built the iPhone app when it came out. I remember... Uh, you know the the weekend when the final work was happening on the first Yelp iPhone app, the launch of the iPhone App Store, and Jeremy was like stressed out about it, working late on it, and the, uh, and the, like it. So it, you know, that's where incumbents and Google with search was able to. Now Google had to go to Great lengths. Google had to acquire Android, do all these negotiations with Apple. Like Google was able to retain a search kind of lead um, on mobile, but that wasn't obvious, right? Like Apple could have put an upstart in there and displaced them. Or if it wasn't for Android, Google might not have default search on all those other firms, on all those other phones. So um, and then there's examples where incumbents get displaced all the time. Right. So like uh, Instagram, right, is major social. What's like all these new social apps came out. Facebook bought a bunch of them. So that's another like through m and they can kind of do stuff. So it, it, it's hard to say. I think you're going to see all, there are all kinds of brand new companies um, that and there are many mobile native companies that got built. There are going to be AI native uh, companies that get built. And you can't rule out the incumbents. Incumbents will capture a lot of value. They're going to try their best. I will say the incumbents, it's interesting. Like when you talk about a company like Google or Microsoft is actually doing a great job right now of capturing a lot of that AI value, integrating it and getting it out there. But hist- uh, like right now, these incumbents are getting more long in the tooth. They are these massive organizations, they're a lot older. They feel a lot more like IBM was, you know, in those prior eras or some of these older companies where they have less kind of founders and entrepreneurs maybe on the front lines. And that will make it harder for some of them.
0: You've talked about a number of different use cases for, um, for AI uh, pertaining to consumer. I'm sure you get pitched now a lot of, of AI companies, not to call out anybody, but what are maybe some of the use cases that you actually don't really think are much use cases at all?
1: Well, high level, even before use cases, I think one kind of yellow to red flag is just huge amount of money raised, huge or or raising huge valuation pre-launch, you know, pre-like we're just, we have the idea, we have this and we're such an amazing team, which they are. We're going to raise at this like massive valuation. And there's a Goldilocks amount. There are some teams that are really good that have made that work. But way more often than not, that's been And if you look through the web boom and mobile, like you've seen this time and time again, that sometimes you raise too much money. And it's actually um, kind of uh, creates a failure case for the company because you start burning so much out of control and you don't have product uh, market fit. Necessity is the mother of invention. And like you need some creative constraints, actually, sometimes Um, it's helpful to have some cushion. But if you're raising $100 million or $50 million and you really don't have much, that can sometimes kill the company. So I, that's always a little skeptical and that's tough. So I, you know, it's good to be disciplined, I think, as a founder. Um, and sometimes turn away big piles of cash, even if you can get it until you think you can really put it to work or it makes sense for the company. Um, some of the use cases that are tough, uh, I would say, uh, when, I think people, a lot, what I'm seeing a lot of is people taking existing pitches that wouldn't have been called AI before and they just slap on like, hey, we're using AI. You see, you saw a lot of that with crypto too, like Web3, to say, right. we're doing an ICO. And so, like you said, I won't pick on any one company or whatever in particular, but it, it's a tough time too as a founder because I think everybody's got to think about your AI strategy, whether you're a startup, a public company or something in between. It's kind of like when the web came out. Um And and we'll see if it's as successful as that. But you can't just say, we haven't thought about it. We don't have a strategy. So you have to think about your strategy. But a lot of companies are also losing credibility by just slapping AI into the pitch, thinking that's going to like drum up VC interest. And I think if AI is really not the core of what you do, it's good to be honest about that and just say, hey, we're this kind of company. And maybe you're going to come in at a more attractive valuation. There's still a big market need. And yeah, we might use some AI, but that's not the defining kind of nature of the company
0: that makes a ton of sense like actually getting to the bottom of okay there is maybe ai incorporating your company but but but, but what but how is it actually beneficial just like saying you know previous yeah. in, maybe previously last year or two years ago oh we use blockchain technology well do you actually need to use blockchain technology you know what i mean cuz it seems like
1: you're forcing the ai into the pitch to your point and it doesn't seem like you really need it in there people kind of don't get it especially you're like hey we're just using some open source or off the shelf tools right so we didn't develop any of the tech we're not using it in any proprietary way then people say like okay that's great they're using some new tool but what you know are you really an ai first company
0: totally totally um you know and as i think about you know generative ai in like this period you know i was asked by another investor um who i who who who's been on the show love him um daniel galati about what are some of like the consumer implications for uh, for for AI and especially you might have for example synthetic podcasters or music that's you know AI generated or different art forms and it kind of reminded me I don't know if you remember this but like back in 2012 2013 when like the Tupac hologram was um, at Coachella I totally um, remember
1: this watershed moment like, it.
0: Yeah, it's like it's super super uh, well, it just kind of reminded me of that moment because you know at the time I was working at WME and which is one of if not the like biggest you know entertainment this is this is tech podcast people might not be as familiar with with WME but it, but it's one of the largest um, entertainment agencies in the world and I was working in the music department and Mark Geiger who's the head of who was head of music at the time and he's like an absolute music industry legend highly recommend people go and and, and, and kind of check him out but um, he would have these quarterly uh, quarterly meetings which were really actually like looking back pretty incredible that he made that time for assistance i mean this guy's a super busy guy and one of the meetings like after it was right after coachella one of the assistants like asked the question i mean i was an assistant but, but, but one of my fellow assistants asked the question like hey how is this tupac hologram gonna change music and live music like are we at a point where people are going to want holograms and people are no longer really going to value seeing actually like their favorite acts in person, that holograms will kind of do the trick and that we're actually not going to see touring quite what it used to be. Um, Is there already going to be like a, a technology component? And what Mark said is that, you know, at the end of the day, people love their stars. They want to see their favorite acts live in person. They don't I don't think at the end of the day, they don't want to see like a hologram. It's a cool, like novel type thing, but you know, overall I don't think it's really going to impact, but I, I, I bring this up cause I was talking with Daniel and I thought about this, how, how it relates to podcasting and they thought of me too. And maybe this is like the moment that we've had here. I wonder if you agree, maybe similar to the Tupac one, but the Joe Rogan, Steve jobs um, uh, podcast interview where it was, you know, a generative AI, Joe Rogan and Steve Jobs kind of maybe similar to Tupac uh, in, in in the Tupac hologram. And will we actually see, um, you know, podcasting be disrupted, for example, with synthetic, uh, with AI uh, podcasters or, and I, I'd, I'd love to ask you this question of how do you, how do you think media in general, do you think will change or won't change?
1: Well, so first of all, by the way, this Tupac thing, so A, uh, Mark, uh, you know, your former uh, co-worker, he was right, right? Like it, so far, at least, you know, since then, and that was a while ago, in the last decade, there wasn't this big boom of holographic concerts. That said, at the time, it was amazing. There was also, as context for people who don't remember, there was a conspiracy theory, kind of like Elvis, that Tupac was still alive, kind of wishful thinking people have. So, that, so some people who weren't at the concert, even people who were there, thought that was the real Tupac. It was so realistic. It did kind of blow people's minds how good it was. I think because it was nighttime, the way it lit up, people thought it looked very realistic, but then it didn't take off. So that was interesting. Uh, but fast forwarding to to what you're talking about now, I think you will start start to see, um, you know, there's a, this concept of like personalized media, right? So even there's kind of fiction and nonfiction, even in fiction, people think maybe there's going to be, you know, you're seeing with chat GPT personalized stories pretty soon. There's going to be like, let me create a movie. And pretty soon, like can the algorithm create, Storylines. You're back to the Simpsons example we were talking about earlier, right? Can you get personalized Simpsons episodes or entire personalized shows or comedies? You know, I like some of these uh, political thrillers, like the show Homeland, and there's a new one like uh, that I've been watching. Like it just finished. Can you generate like new shows on the fly for that? For me, is Netflix going to get into? That? I mean, that's that's pretty out there. There's a ways. I think a lot of work to get there. Go no, right, but much simpler. To your point, like for now. Can you just get like a, a Q&A, right, going where one or both parties are actually AI? The Joe Rogan example, it's like the person uh, answering the questions is AI. That's kind of like character.ai. We already actually have that, right? So do you start to see more of those? And then do you see the flip side? The question asker is AI, right? And then they're asking human questions. Um, I think you're going to see a lot more of those. You're also going to see, if, you know what? So I co-founded Stitcher, a podcast startup. And actually a big part of, and this was over 10 years ago, big part of our original vision, the whole point was stitch together your perfect morning commute of audio show, the exact podcast. You might want to hear like four minutes on the Wall Street Journal, What's News, just the top headlines, and a little bit of The Economist um, and TechCrunch, right? But then you want to hear your mic up like a longer form consumer VC, like, you know, you've got time for that. And But that's not an episode every day. So then you want to rotate in something else. So, you have you're stitching together this perfect morning commute, like you can imagine AI also doing that, packaging up the content you want, pulling in pieces, maybe reading stuff when it's not. So, I think there's a lot of opportunity here for for AI to really invent how we consume media. I think what's very difficult to predict is which will be gimmicky, like this hologram was, and what's going to stick. So, I could make a couple predictions now. Um, which I think back to Mark's Insight, right? And the same thing when I was at Yelp, we we're thinking about local, what could get disrupted by, by software and what couldn't. It's experiences where, just like Mark was saying, like, are where people really seek that human connection and they really care that there's an authentic human on the other side, those tend to resist more. So like in local, it was like going to a restaurant, eating food or like going to a spa, right? Someone's going to give a massage or something. Like these are very hand-to-hand kind of, you, you need a human, Um, And then similarly, going to a concert, experiencing that actual human live on stage. Sports, you want to see those real humans. Um, And I think there's there's certain personalities like podcasts, like you said, where people actually care about that personality. But if it's just information, Wall Street Journal, economist type information, how much do you care about the personality? I don't know.
0: I think, you know, the digital experience, I think you're right, right? Like if you're listening, how much... How much if it's just news? How much do you? How much do you typically care about who's actually commentating versus not? And it it might be that you do care, right? It's 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 one of these more things you're asking yourself. I think in the terms of like thinking about like podcasting because it is like a digital experience, right? It's not like an in person experience. Like because I was I was asked like is are like the rich rolls the, the Tim Ferrisses of the world? Like of course like they're fine, but like the, I'm thinking about like the next Tim Ferrisses, the next Rich Rolls. A part of I think that why we will still opt for a human over like an AI, maybe that could maybe do the same thing as a human is because you actually know a bit more like their life story. And that actually kind of ties into why you listen to them because, you know, they might've written books. They might've done others. I mean, Rich Rolls very, very open about, uh, about like his, like, um, about how he really like altered his life when he was 40 years old, and so these kind of experiences make you actually more invested than in the actual person. So, well,
1: and people have been asking about like how does this apply to like Mr. Beast, right? These YouTube, or I think Casey uh, Neistat is a good example where he recently tried to do a whole episode um, just using AI scripting what he was going to do, and then his thing was like, oh, this is the worst episode ever um, mm-hmm. of my you know of my show on YouTube and everything, but. That, you know, it, it's that people are there for these people's personality, like you said many times. Um, and at the same time, I think they're not seeing how a different format might get really appealing. Um, and I could see, especially generationally, you could see younger people who just like auto-generated videos. Maybe it's just they know it's avatars and animated characters and they lose connection that human. They're actually connected. There's could be a backstory to this fictional character. That's a reality. I think we all have to be humble about this. It's so early, right? Very few people can predict how all this stuff is going to play out. There's so much uncertainty in the system. Um, But it makes it a very fun time to be a founder and a very fun time to be an investor. um, Because now you get to or work at a startup or be involved in the ecosystem in any way, right? Because you get to be on the ground level, even though there's all this uncertainty, how it's going to shake out. You can see this rapid iteration through all these cool ideas.
0: How do you think about like this moment where we're at right now, comparatively to where you were at a year ago when we talked the world about crypto, Web3 um, and what was going on then, where it seemed like that was the moment for it? Like, how, how do you think about like, crypto and Web3 at this point today? Yeah, so what's
1: interesting, first of all, with the AI analogy is that uh, versus crypto, crypto actually, you, know, a year ago, had created a lot more dollar value probably for more people. Um, just cuz by its nature and I think that's why there was so much excitement about it it was a way for everyone to get a lottery ticket to get rich quick and you could just get in on this thing you didn't have to understand necessarily like what it even did ai does not quite have that same thing where you can get the token immediately start to you know trade the, the tokens you know share in those rewards but at the same time i think just from where i sit a lot of my you know friends in technology who've been around i I've, I've been through like The original .dot com, and you know the you know then the mobile boom, and now this Um, AI does feel more credible. It just feels like it's more broad based. There's more use cases for crypto. Applying it as a true widespread platform. Remember, I was saying like reinvent. Like, were you going to reinvent search and shopping and local and transportation on crypto? I thought through all those. Yeah, you should have like Uber. And I got these pitches where. The driver gets some tokens, you know, for driving better and you get loyalty tokens. Like you could have made it fit, but it wasn't always a natural fit. It didn't always make sense. Like, wait, why are we doing this? And with AI, a lot of times it's more obvious. Like, oh, it can be super useful for this use case. Um, So it, it does seem like a more broad based platform. It does seem like it's having its moment. I think crypto, the moment has really passed. I think there's gonna be some diehard crypto loyalists. Who are going to stick with it, and they're going to create value. There's going to be new, new innovation in Web three, certainly that's valuable. And the technology has already proved a, it's made a lot of people a lot of money, but b, uh, more importantly, it's it's made an impact that I think um, that we're seeing. Uh, and and that's I don't want to go down, too far down that tangent, but in terms of the entrepreneurial energy, in terms of you know founders, employees, people being excited to work on this stuff, funding right. The really, the ship has sailed. And I think the entrepreneurial true north has moved from Web3 and crypto to AI now. And AI might have more lasting power. I do think I'm very optimistic that this one could go for a distance because we've all been waiting for this for a really long time as well for AI to have its moment. It's having the moment now. The only question is, is it a false start? Will there be some delays? Um, You know, autonomous driving that happened. There was all this excitement and then it really got pushed, uh, you know true L5, L4 autonomous vehicle, it was always like five years away. And that's been pushed for the last five years. Now it's another five years away where you're going to really have widespread. It's inching its way there. Um, That could happen to AI, but I don't think that's the case. I think the Pandora's box is open.
0: What do you think in terms of what could potentially stop like generative AI um, AI from, um, from moving forward. Like for example, like right now there's like a few lawsuits, for example, I, I, I believe from like media companies about, about copyright infringement. Um, what's your, what's your kind of take on that when it comes to like how media could actually, you know, interact with, with generative AI? I
1: don't think it'll be copyright specifically, like from the music industry, the way that put a chilling effect on Napster and, and online music. Originally, it slowed it down. By the way, Spotify, all this stuff still happened, but it did take like a little bit longer. A long time, no, for yeah. sure. Yeah, so it took longer. So, so that could be. I don't. I don't know that it'll be music industry per se. It could be though. Google and others, right? There were Google employees who quit, or sorry, OpenAI employees who quit because they said that um, you know the data was coming from the wrong place. Like there are, there are going to be lawsuits. There is going to be some regulatory pressure, and so there could be some chilling effects there. So I think that is one kind of risk factor to watch. I think the genie's out of the bottle and I think people can change the training sets or go like, whoops, we shifted to something else, you know, so could government regulation do it? Um, You know, possibly, although I buy this argument, there's a lot of this, Hey, let's, there was this six month pause proposal in the United States, a bunch of people signed on to, I don't think that'll actually happen, but there's this counter argument like, okay, the U S pauses on AI. Is China going to pause on AI? Like, can you enforce some kind of global, And so ultimately, I think in the United States, everyone's going to, in every country, it's going to say, hey, we want to just move as fast as we can, because if we don't, others will. And so whether you're concerned about copyright, whether you're concerned about who owns data sets, or whether you're concerned about these safety concerns, I I do think there's real concerns there. But the technology is probably just going to keep moving, and people will just have to try and solve all these concerns in parallel as it's going.
0: Yeah, and I think that also we're going to find as well, um as you know consumers become smarter it's also like do you kind of trust the data set or or do you not as well right um like at, at the end of the day um because I'm sure that that, that you're, you might have data sets that based off of you know maybe like fake things or or what happened and so but um uh, but in terms of from, from a national in, interest uh, point of view it's um it makes sense that you actually want the industry to develop and develop and develop because you know other countries as well is, are 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 going to also do the exact same thing. Now, you could make the
1: argument. What's interesting, if you look at the nuclear analogy, right, there's Chernobyl, there's a Chernobyl moment when there's a really bad accident with a new technology. So people who are fans of nuclear power think it's actually a big path to clean energy say like, you know, it's foolish that we froze development so much because of, of these accidents. Like if you look at, you know, coal and oil, like all the damage that that's caused, um, nuclear would have been cleaner. With that argument, you could say maybe there's a big AI, some safety, you know, a a large power grid goes down and affects a bunch of hospitals too. And like people that like some real world consequences happen because of some AI system that was, you know, had, had a mistake. And people say, wow, we really can't trust this as much as we thought it's not as foolproof. So there, there could be something like that. Um, But I'm betting that probably uh, there's not something that bad.
0: That's actually a great analogy um, to what happened in Chernobyl and, and, and what happened in, in, uh and, and how that put nuclear back I mean it actually made us stop nuclear um altogether so that's a that's a great example okay so you're obviously bullish on on AI you you, you don't see maybe there's gonna be some speed bumps but you don't see like a full stop um coming and it also seems like you don't see it kind of limping along as um as like automated um automatic driving is um how it's always you know five years five years five years five years
1: I think artificial general intelligence, true AGI, might be like that. Okay, where it keeps getting pissed off. But there's all these specific. There's vertical AI, and you know all these consumer applications and applied AI, all these use cases for AI that might not be general intelligence, but it but it does. But huge like billion dollar companies of value being created.
0: So paint a picture in your mind five years from now. What from a consumer perspective will change?
1: Yeah. So a few things, one, like getting back to these agents, I think a lot of things that you need done for you, you know, I've had, uh, you know, I have a, a real executive assistant. She's amazing. Um, I, you know, I've had a, a few over the years. I've also had a virtual assistant where you have somebody in another country and they go and you work with them through like through another provider. I've even had, you know, a rudimentary AI assistant, this company called Clara, right. Where it was actually just software was my assistant doing my scheduling, um, when I was, you know, in between jobs, and I didn't want to hire a full blown assistant, I just had the software do it. You can imagine everyone who hasn't had one of these. Like everyone, actually, should have someone helping them in the form of an algorithm working with them to make their life better. So, I the the you know, if, if movies help people kind of imagine this stuff, her is probably the biggest one that I kind of come back to. Not like the movie AI. We've got a full blown general intelligence robot, right? Like that. That's kind of like one extreme view. That's the one I think takes longer. Um, But more like, and her is pretty advanced. I don't think we'll be there in five years. Um, But some kind of a personality who's helping you uh, and going much like Siri. I think Siri actually was Apple's attempt to do something like this. But if you look at it now, it just really stunted development. It's really um, kind of a very, very limited compared to now the possibilities. Like no one has strung together, take everything we're seeing between MidJourney, Dolly, and ChatGPT, like all this stuff that we've all now got a chance to use, you know, booking my travel, booking my tickets, figuring out where I should go, figuring out my plan, setting up, you know, social stuff for me, like all of these things, uh, doing my photos. I saw an app that like organized, figure out your best photos, out, all this stuff. Um, you can get this all consolidated maybe into one, and that's the question. It's going to be one big super app doing all of this or a bunch of different apps on one big platform like the iPhone there's a few different ways it could shake out, but your whole life you're probably going to be using AI quite frequently, whether you call it that or not. Um, you know, one theory is that we just call AI like a few steps ahead in terms of sophistication of the technology and how smart it is. Um, and what we're now we might not call it AI anymore; it's just like table stakes. That's another theory.
0: No, that's um, uh, no. I I really appreciate all these examples. Um, and, and and again, it, it goes back to your original point about um about having these ai agents that actually um you know could become your 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 assistant or even collaborator like it was in like her for example um uh and actually have just another person to or you know thing to engage with so um that it makes a lot of sense i know i ask you this question i think every time do you ever have a new one and and did you do have books in the back um a back of you what are you currently reading um, that you're enjoying so far?
1: Yeah, so um, you know what's funny is I went back. There's just, this is, it's not related to AI. The, the the book that's related to AI that I think a lot of people haven't read that's interesting and it's new because it's a few years old now, but it was with this Elon Musk dinner and everything, The Most Human Human. I believe the author is Brian Christian. That's a really good one on AI that's just, I think, really interesting to, to look at. Um, the book that I actually just started doing as an audiobook on a road trip with my family, with the kids, actually, we went to Disneyland and we listened to this book, Disney War. And that's just like a fun one. That's one of my favorite. It reads like fiction. It's so interesting and so well-researched, but it's all nonfiction because it's amazing journalists who, who did all this research. And it's the story of especially when Michael Eisner was CEO of Disney and all the you know ups and downs, but goes from the very beginning. Super fascinating. Um, so if you like Disney at all, or or you, you know, it's, it's almost like the wire, the way that journalist researched Baltimore. So, but for Disney and Disney's history, i say anyway,
0: that's awesome. I will. The wire
1: meets Disney is an interesting
0: combination. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, I'll, I'm all for it. Um, we'll definitely add that to the list. Um, Mike, thank you again so much for your time. This was a lot of fun. Awesome.
1: Thank you. Always a
0: pleasure. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Mike. Mike, thanks again so much for coming on the show. Highly recommend following him at new Mike on Twitter. Gabriel, thank you for joining me today. How are you? Yeah, really great. Uh, Thanks for having me, Mike. No, it's a really, really appreciate it. So what we're talking about, like SPVs, um, which I know we just, you know, kind of went into what that actually means and and the in and outs of how that how that kind of works in that process. What's typically the the time frame for structuring one?
2: Yeah, so. If you use a traditional method, um, you know, going through a legal counsel and, you know, the various ancillary businesses, you know, you can look anywhere from a month to a couple months uh, to fun, fully structure. Uh, from our side, you know, to create an SPV takes less than 24 hours um to go through the KYC process less than 24 hours to deploy the capital it's really as fast as your uh, investors deploying the capital into the SPV um so overall i would say you know it, it can be as fast or slow as your you know slowest investor but a t- typical average time frame can range from anywhere from one week to two weeks. Um, and what's beautiful about our platform is, you know, once you become a user into Vobon, you don't have to go through that KYC process more than once. So uh, really expediting your second and third time deal, which is great.
0: Are you also able to, um, on Vauban, are you are you also able to see what other SPVs are on the platform or, or is that mostly private? Yeah, that's a
2: great question. So with Vauban and Carta you know we very much um, respect the privacy of the private markets Mm -hmm. Um, so we do not operate as a marketplace uh, whereas some of our competitors might um, predominantly because it does take a lot of time and effort to build those relationships um, building trust with you know your network to invest in opportunities it's an extremely you know time-consuming task um Build that trust and relationship. So for us, you know, it is your own private investor network. It is your own, you know, private uh deal, deal syndicate platform. Uh so there isn't any you know marketplace where you know other investors will be soliciting your uh your investor network. So it's very much private.
0: If you are loving the show, I highly recommend checking out the newsletter at theconsumervc.com where you'll receive all new episodes straight to your inbox, and a weekly recap of all the consumer deals that are happening. I'm also doing some more events, so you'll also be the first one to receive information about those.